Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Well, my big writing project that consumed most of my time since our last episode aired is now complete, and I'm excited to be back with you for a new season. I want you to know that we have some extraordinary people coming on as guests in the coming weeks, and we kick things off today by having two guests at once. They're both Wall Street Journal reporters and the co-authors of the brilliant best-selling book, Lights Out, Pride, Delusion, and the Fall of General Electric. Microsoft founder Bill Gates recently said that every leader in the world must read this book for the cautionary leadership lessons it teaches. So I'm thrilled we have its authors, Tom Gritta and Ted Mann, joining us to discuss it. As Gates himself wrote in a blog about the book, General Electric is a mythical corporation. It was founded in 1892, famously by innovator Thomas Edison and financier J.P. Morgan. We all know GE is a company that once made appliances, light bulbs, diesel trains, jet plane engines, and we all remember its legendary brand motto, we bring good things to life. At its peak in 2000, GE was the largest, most powerful company in the world worth over $600 billion. Even its CEO at that time, the legendary Jack Welch, who went on to write five best-selling books on leadership, was held up in the media and in business for being one of the greatest corporate chief executives of all time. But as you're about to hear, it turns out that word mythic is the perfect word for GE. The corporation came crashing to earth in one of the greatest downfalls in business history. And as you're gonna hear, largely because of leadership decisions made by Welch and his handpicked successor, Jeffrey Immelt, that were anchored in hubris and a false assumption of invincibility. GE was also a company driven by a desire to please investors at all costs. Greta and Mann's book, for example, reveals that Welch fired over 100,000 employees to cut costs, and he moved thousands more jobs overseas in order to pay workers less and stop providing them with benefits. Welch also used questionable accounting tricks to ensure GE met its earning targets every quarter. And his successor, Jeff Immelt, had a penchant for not just ignoring bad news, but for punishing executives who offered alternative views or tried to warn him of potential problems. GE ended up greatly overpaying for French power company Alstom because executives who saw the risks had no incentive at all to speak up. GE's experience is a cautionary tale for all leaders to absorb. Its share price has fallen nearly 80% from where it was 20 years ago. In 2018, GE was dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average after being a continuous member since 1907. And as the company has struggled to remain a going concern, tens of thousands more GE employees have lost their jobs. So what are the most essential lessons being learned from GE and its tragic downfall? Well, that's what we're going to explore starting right now. And let me welcome you both to the podcast, Tom Gritta and Ted Mann. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm very excited. Honestly, congratulations on the book, for starters. I read it in one sitting, and the whole time I felt like I was reading this dramatic fiction until I remembered everything I was reading was actually real. So to start things off for our audience, tell us what influenced you to write this book together, and what was your process in doing it? <laughs> well, just a bit of background here. Ted covered, this is Tom, Ted covered GE for years before I did. And I moved into the beat. Obviously, I'd already known Ted. We'd worked in the same group together. So even taking the job, you know, sort of working with Ted was a consideration and an attraction. You know, and we worked together really well. We covered a lot of what was going on at, at GE. 
both sort of getting me up to speed quickly, but within a few months, some problems really started emerging. And it was a, a lot of coverage that we did together. Now, as far as writing the book, there was no way we were writing the book. We would have to be together. And Ted, maybe you can pick it up here. I think, I think Ted actually called me one day and said something like, do you want to write a book about GE? And it was like, <laughs> what? And it sort of started a, a months long sort of conversation and process that got us to here. Yeah, I was actually out on paternity leave. And one of the dangers of paternity leave is you have, when the child is finally asleep, you have too much time on your hands to think. And I was just reading so much of what Tom was writing at that point about the company, still talking to people I knew who were connected to the company. And we had gone to dinner with a friend, my wife and I, who had suggested, who had said, when I would not shut up about the company, like, well, why don't you just write a book about it? And that thought had just been rattling around in my head. And I just eventually called Tom and said, I think you ought to do this. And it was right around that point when we found out that there were editors at the Wall Street Journal who wanted a big, long, ambitious story about GE and what was happening there. So we started by pulling together that story, which was the longest thing I think either of us had ever written. And from there, it just turned into a book project. Fantastic. Well, as you both know, my dad was a senior executive at GE for many years when I was a kid. And so as I grew up, you know, I was believing that GE was this indestructible force in the world, an organization that was as reliable and trustworthy as they come. But one of the great conclusions of your book is that this is a myth that we all believed about the company. It wasn't real after all. So in the past 30 years, a lot about GE we once knew greatly changed. And as we get deeper in the conversation, I have more detailed conversations for you about former CEOs, Jack Welch and Jeff Immel. But for starters, give us a Reader's Digest summary of what we once believed to be true about GE and what you ended up discovering. Maybe I'll take a stab at that, Tom. I mean, what I think is true, and it's sort of implicit in your question, is that this was a just a truly remarkable company. And they sort of destroyed the American economy and they seemed to do everything. And they introduced whole product sort of sectors to the American home. I mean, the, the white goods of the middle class house in the mid 20th century are there because of General Electric more than any other company. And so they did do amazing things and they sit on a library of patents and they can boast Nobel Prize winners in their research labs and you know all of those great things of big conglomerate capitalism of the last century. So none of that is false. None of that is fake. And the inventions they invented were consequential and still are. I think what was less and less true over time and the, the more dangerous and mythical thing was the notion that GE aggressively advertised, which was that their management was so superior and essentially all-knowing that their processes could manage any number of complex and unrelated business lines that their managers, as they like to tell people, could run a business and could run any business just because they were so good at management and they had trained in the GE way and that they really inured investors, employees, and themselves, to say nothing of journalists, against the enormous risks of what was an increasingly cumbersome company and one where they didn't actually have an all-knowing view that could guard against potential mistakes or long-tail risks. And there were a number of warning shots where we could see, like, this might not be the one conglomerate that is completely manageable in, in all dangerous situations when every other one has been ordered to break up because we see the risks of that structure. 
you know, in the financial crisis was one of those moments where it seemed like, huh, maybe this thing is not impregnable in the way that they've trained us to believe. That's, I think, the myth that was propagated by the CEOs and the marketing departments and everybody else. And also by, to be fair, by a lot of journalists who, who saw them as simply better at managing than anybody else. That's the thing that turned out to not be true. There was still, and there is still to this day, great engineering and manufacturing prowess within the company. And there was no faking the performance of a jet engine. There was some fakery in the books and in the presentations to investors. But, but that's the myth was this, this notion that they were simply so much better at management than everybody else that you didn't have to worry about anything. So I guess the first question I have is, why did the media particularly take GE at their word? Why wasn't there more rigor in digging into how they were actually you know, validating whether or not they really were managing the way they said they were? Yeah, I, was, I mean, I think, you know, for a long time, GE sort of put its money where its mouth was, right? I mean, it was doing amazing things. And, and like when you, you spoke about your father, that is sort of GE that once was, or I don't think that's entirely wrong. You know, I, I don't think that it's like, oh, this was this totally rotten thing covered by this candy shell. I think that that culture led to some bad behavior upon management. There's a solid foundation, I think. It's just, you know, you have to make, just because the foundation's solid, you still have to make sure the building is, is strong. But for as far as the media is concerned, and I think especially when you think about the 90s, which I think is when, mm-hmm. you know, I think since World War II, it's had a prominent place in American society. But when you think about the 90s, when the stock really took off and you sort of have a cult of personality around Jack Welch, and also, I think you have to pair that with knowledge that, you know, it wasn't until after Jack retired that, you know, Enron collapses and people are really starting to push for more transparency in what's actually going on inside of companies. And it goes even to terribly boring things like what they have to disclose in their SEC filings and, you know, what they have to inform investors of and how they have to do it. So I think it's important to sort of when we're looking to sort of consider the perspective of the time that we're talking about, if that makes sense. It does. So why don't we start talking about Jack Welch? He was GE's CEO from 1981 to 2001. And until your book came out, he'd been regarded as like the most influential CEO of the 20th century. You guys called him the avatar of success because he built this reputation for meeting Wall Street expectations quarter to quarter, year after year. And then he went on to write five books about leadership. And many people believed his method set the example for all managers to follow, like he was a god. But what he discovered is Welch often relied upon financial and accounting manipulation in order to use your word, smooth out the company earnings. And as you say in your book, problems were hidden for the sake of preserving performance, thus allowing small problems to become big problems before they were detected. So tell us how Welch used GE's size and wherewithal to cover up mistakes and poor business performance. I take a stab at that. that. Sure, sure, happy to. I mean, Welch was in a little, it's sort of similar to the answer to our last question. Welch was very good at being a CEO and rightly deserved this reputation for a lot of the things that he got right. And he was legendary for having just an unbelievable head for the operations or deep down within different industrial businesses. If you went in and tried to snow him about some factory that wasn't producing enough widgets, he would you know, seize on the very worst question for you that you didn't have an answer for. He just had this really rigorous understanding of the company's operations. So I think he rightly got credit for all of that. 
I also I remember at one point when we were working on the book talking to someone who was a great fan of Welch, a good friend, who said to me, man, when he figured out Gene Capital and what you could do and how much easier it is to make a dollar with a dollar than make a dollar by building a machine, he kind of went crazy for it. And so that that is the era in the later period of his career in the 90s when Gene Capital starts to just mushroom and a lot of that was really good business for GE for a long time, that all of those capital earnings created the smoothing tool that could be used to make it so that they never missed a quarterly earnings target. But there was a lot of risk that went along with that. And a lot of that that smoothing was just really playing games and not doing things that gave the appearance of just absolutely unbroken, steady upward trajectory to investors and to Wall Street when really it was selling half a parking lot on the last day of the quarter because you were going to miss your earnings target and then buying it back you know, a week later, which wasn't actually productive economic activity for anybody. It was just making things look better than they were. And so there was, there was a lot of that. And so he was a complicated guy. And I think that, as Tom was saying, he was such a star by the time he was at the end of his career at GE, in part because it was a different era of the way people looked at business and covered business and invested in business. And there was this willingness to let him sort of do whatever he had to do if he was going to come out every three months and say, we beat earnings again. Then suddenly there was just a lot less tolerance for that. And you would have incidents like collapse of Enron. People want to know, okay, well, how are you doing this? And that would have been a little bit more difficult to explain. You know, and I was going to say also that everything, obviously, Ted said, right, I agree with you know, I think Welch also thought like that there wasn't like words like, you know, manipulation or, you know, covering up. I think Welch thought that was the way to run GE and that was what GE was. The, the idea like did Welch use it, the GE size to cover up mistakes? I think that he would say, well, no, GE size and different businesses allow mis- if mistakes are made, the other businesses will help compensate for that and smoothing of earnings like i think we have in the book that he says basically at one point like you know who would want to invest in a company like this if they couldn't provide regular earnings i mean he thought you know part of his job was smoothing out the performance so that investors were getting what they wanted it really is a very different era but it's a different era in GE, perhaps, but were other organizations doing the exact same thing? I mean, you just gave this example of selling off assets, major assets, you know, at the end of the quarter so that it looks like a real sales transaction. So you can report revenue and that allows you to meet your earnings estimate and you look like a hero. And then as soon as the quarter is over, you buy back that asset and you start all over. Were other organizations doing that? You know, I don't think we know what's going on at all the other companies, but I wouldn't doubt that others, you know, we know companies like Enron and such were actually committing fraud along those lines. But I think I think companies getting creative in order to make their numbers is something that happens even today. The examples you cite are obviously blatant and would clearly violate the spirit of accounting regulations. <laughs> all right. I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page because when I read it, I was like, Wow, like I get that you want to even out your earnings and make sure that people can count on you. I think it also goes to that question of scale. And Tom's right that Welch was actually pretty forthright about how this is one of the things they did. And you could do it because you were GE and you were gigantic. The fact that they had capital, which had this enormous and very diverse portfolio of assets that you could buy and sell and, and sort of make transactions with, that wasn't something that other companies had. And so they couldn't use it in the same way that GE did. And so that's also part of the difference. They were just such a colossus at that point. 
I mean, that was their absolute peak in terms of market cap and overall size. It was alarming to me to read that over his tenure that he slashed over 100,000 General Electric employee jobs and then moved tens of thousands more jobs offshore so that he can get cheap labor, not pay benefits and so forth. That was a huge number of employees, obviously, relative to what I think was the promise of GE that, you know, if you did good work, you could be here forever. And then, I'm not sure when, but probably in the 50s and 60s, their plants were polluting the Hudson River, and it became obvious that there was all this toxic waste in the river, and they were being asked to clean it up, to remediate it. And it was surprising to me that he was so resistant to taking any responsibility for that. And then one last thing that he did, which is obviously world famous, which is his ranking yank system where employees whose performance ranked in the bottom 10% of the company each year got fired. So in light of all you've learned and those examples and seeing what's become of General Electric two decades later, what responsibility do you attribute to him for the fall? And the big question, I think, is what's going to be his leadership legacy now that all of your research has seen the light of day? That's a good question. You know, to be clear, our research is not the first or the last word on Jack. Even during his time, he did face criticism, you know, hearing the name Neutron Jack, which he always hated. The idea being that, you know, when he arrived, the buildings were left standing, but the people were gone. You know, he was obviously greatly admired. He still is in some corners. And I think that speaks more to what Ted was talking about earlier about, you know, some of the things he did were just very, you know, as far as corporate planning and bringing GE sort of up to date in its management style. He was ruthless. He was sort of famously ruthless. I think at the time it was seen. And as you mentioned, his leadership books, I think it was seen as like, this is the new theory of management. This is the future. You know, people talk now the future of work that kind of thing, right? This is what companies will be, or this is how you should run your company or your organization. And I think that it's pretty clearly not what happened. The world sort of went in a different direction than the ruthless, uh, what could be seen as ruthless, especially in light of, you know, nowadays we're talking about ESG, we're talking about stakeholders, you know, thinking about those who are impacted by a company's decision other than just shareholders, right? It's not about getting the share price up or the dividend increased. It's more about, hey, we can actually provide more value to everyone when we think about everyone who's impacted. Again, what will we be saying about that in 20 or 30 years? I don't know. But I do think his legacy is complicated as far as his role and what happened with GE. That's also complicated, I think. <laughs> It's mixed together in a sort of, you know, with Jeff Immel and what and how he sort of ran the company when he came in. Ted, I don't know if you have if you're something you're trying to get in there, but I think uh, it's complicated. Certainly some people will blame Jack and others, his supporters will say Jack left a perfect company for Jeff and Jeff screwed it up, which I think is not true. Yeah, those are both the two ends of that spectrum, which we heard from various groups of people. The Jack defenders would say, as Tom just said, that he like how could you not have succeeded with this perfect company he left you? The Jeff defenders will say this was a falling knife and the stock was already declining when ML took over. And there was a tremendous amount of restructuring and transformation that needed to be done. And ML did what he had to do. And they will always bring up that, you know, 9-11 happens four days into his tenure. And 
So yeah, the truth is somewhere between those two things. Well, one thing that you point out in the book is, that, and we're going to talk about Jeff Immelt in a second, but then the freedom that Jack Welch had to whatever word you want to use, manipulation, the accounting tricks that he used to smooth out earnings, there were fewer of them for Jeff Immelt by the time he got into the job. So when he first, for the first time, announced that they weren't going to meet their earnings projections, and Jack Welch pounced on him for that because that was the greatest taboo in the organization. It was sort of implied in your book that part of the reason for that was that they didn't have the ability to go in there and, and use the tricks that Jack had used. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's to a degree that's true. I think some of those tricks, you know, tricks is a little, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that is true. It was harder for him to do those things. I do think they got, that situation you're talking about in particular was, it seems like it was a miscalculation and that they thought they could make those numbers. They gave some guidance and said, oh yeah, we can pull it off. But then in the end, they actually couldn't pull off that sort of usual last minute thing that Ted was talking about earlier. And it led to this shortfall. And then, yeah, Welch, you know, sort of freaked out, which in itself was sort of a breach of the traditional GE culture. Like he criticizing the current CEO when he is long out of the company. I think that sort of does speak to some of the, uh, the changes that happen and the rough adjustment going from a Welch era to an Immelt era. Ted, did you want to add something to that? That says it all. And there's a reason that that moment stung so badly. And the relationship between the two guys was really never the same after that. So let's just get a grounding here. Is it an accounting trick? What's the language that, that I should be using to represent you both fairly? There was always questions about, was there fraud? They certainly had SEC investigations. They had settlements in which they were alleged to have, you know, in our, in our own reporting has shown a lot of those sorts of behaviors within, you know, the limits of the law or stretching them sometimes. But I think, you know, tricks is probably an okay word. I don't know. Ted's more of a wordsmith than I am. I wonder. What he... No, I, I think tricks is fine. You just always know that it's in the eye of the beholder and anyone who was responsible for the books at GE would deny that any trick was ever used. But all you need to do is read the most recent settlement with the SEC and the description of the use of selling receivables and it being compared to a drug that they sort of got hooked on. Um, tricks seems gentle and fine. Like no one's alleging criminal fraud, but clearly they were finding ways to use the accounting rules to make the numbers seem as good as they needed them to be. And if you were someone who bought a share at 20 bucks and it's worth seven, you probably think it was an accounting trick that was tricking you into buying it at 20. Thank you. That's actually a helpful perspective. And I, I want to talk about Jeff Immelt. And it's interesting, Jack Welch actually handpicked him. <laughs> it's in somewhat of an unusual way. GE has his reputation for having all these systems, but it almost seemed at the last minute it was an impulsive decision to give him the job. But nevertheless, you describe him as someone who reconfigured General Electric through a relentless pursuit of deals. You just mentioned drugs a minute ago. That was my sense of it. It was like the, the need to do deals felt like I got to get my next hit. Maybe you can speak to that. But he ended up with a line of businesses that were entirely unrelated to one another, including movie making, plastics, insurance, nuclear power plants. And ignoring all the companies that he bought must have had very different cultures, which something struck me was like, how do you integrate all this? What was his strategy? How did it fit under the General Electric brand? Like, what was he trying to accomplish with all these acquisitions? I think this is the most interesting thing about ML. 
because it gets to the things that are to become huge flaws and it also just absolutely central to the defense of him. He gets this job, the pinnacle of his career, and he's expecting to spend 20 years there just like Welch did. And the first thing he starts doing is he sets out to transform the company. And some of that, some of those initial wave of deals was in that post 9-11 moment in the economy. And they made a bunch of bad ones like buying the water business. Email now concedes that that wasn't a good deal, which is is rare, I think, for CEOs to own up to something like that. So there was that. There was sort of trying to be opportunistic and chasing things. And he had this reputation for overpaying sometimes. There was also, though, his knowledge of the company and his belief about where the economy was going also dictated that the company had to change, globalization being probably the biggest aspect there. Immelt saying, like, we're an industrial business. Growth in the United States is not going to sustain us. We need growth everywhere else in the world. We have to think about how to grow our existing businesses like the jet engine business and the power business and other places, how to get into others that will also grow in all of these places where GE would have a presence, but they weren't big operators. They weren't driving huge revenues in those other parts of the world. And so he is responding to what he sees as, you know, the needs of this giant conglomerate in the new century and to sort of grow and change with the economy that's growing and changing because his job is not to preserve a museum to Jack Welch. It's to be a successful company in the 21st century. So that I think is something that was a challenge that he just, he took on. Then the question that would be raised by people who are more critical of him was how much he became fixated on focusing on what was new and getting out of what was old or dated or show less promise. And In some cases, I think there's a defense of that in the business sense, like they would talk not just ML, but others at the company. They talked about getting out of anything that had been commoditized. So for years, they were trying to get out of the appliance business. It was never going to grow like they wanted it to grow and sort of grow in terms of profit when you're in a business competing against so many others who can build the same machine you can. And then he also just took flyers into new sectors, the biggest example of that being oil and gas, where... They showed up late. They didn't know the business well. They paid too much and their timing was was awful. And the result is they just burned up a lot of money. I would say that adding to that, I think maybe even for like a higher level with going from Welsh to ML and it's sort of that GE culture and mythology that we were talking about earlier. It's, in some ways, it's Jeff as the sort of runaway version of that, right? That mm-hmm. you know, we can run anything and if we own it, it's worth more. There's like an arrogance mixed in there, right? Like it's like, no, I'm just going to cram it in here and as Ted said, often chasing trends. So you're like buying into water companies or security companies or oil, or you could even say TV and media that they underestimated the investment that would be needed. But it's almost like, hey, we can just ram this in there and we can make it work because we know how, instead of being an industrial conglomerate, right? They're, they're an industrial company that has a lot of different parts under it, but not a holding company like a Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett or you know private equity or something. But that mindset, I think, was there. Jeff, I think, sort of ran away with that. It's like, well, we can make anything work. And I think we demonstrate that. I totally agree. And I feel like the sort of perhaps the simplest demonstration of all of this is the GE Digital fiasco. Because it demonstrates both like Imelt's vision, which was his future vision was so frequently correct. Like, yes, there are going to be tiny, cheap sensors in every machine. They're going to generate a ton of data. That data will be useful for something. We're going to have to think about what our machines are going to do and what the data is going to do. And all of that seems 
pretty right. And a lot of other industrial companies are now trying to figure out what they're going to do with data. But then the hubris takes over and ML's decision is that what they ought to do is become a top 10 software company. And it's just, they're great at engineering, but you can't just decide you're going to be a top 10 software company. It's just not how it works. And they've lost a lot of money chasing that dream when there are a lot of people internally who felt like we have the right idea and we make the best machines in these various industrial sectors in the world. We ought to talk to one of the companies that make the best software in the world and figure out how to make this work for everybody. So there was both these instances of, I think, pretty defensible, long-range vision and planning, but with this organizational hubris, this idea that they could do anything simply because they were better than everybody else, and that will get you in trouble. Well, this is a leadership podcast. I really want to focus on the behaviors and practices that you just said greatly limited his effectiveness as a CEO and top manager. I mean, you're attributing this to GE, but it's really attributable to him as the CEO. And a lack of humility, you've used the word arrogance and hubris, big ego are things that tend to destroy leadership careers. And the way you describe them, Emil had all of these in spades. And so from your book, I want to share this with our audience. I learned that he wanted the royal treatment, your language, everywhere he went. So let me read a couple bullets here. His staff had to have hard candies and his favorite soda waiting for him everywhere he went and to open elevator doors for him. He flew with his own treadmill because he didn't like the ones in the hotels where he was staying. He spent millions of dollars repainting the corporate jets that he was flying on, even though they didn't need any repainting. He required the room temperature to be as cold as a meat locker wherever he was. He had a car waiting for him at the heliport at General Electric's upstate New York office, even though the trip to the building from the heliport was only a few hundred feet away. Everywhere he flew, a second shadow plane went with him, apparently so he'd have a backup if the first plane had problems. But as you point out, this is uncommon even for like the president of the United States, heads of state. And he never disclosed it. And then when it came out in the open, he denied ever knowing about it. So my big question, were these harmless peccadillos or did they have deeper consequences in what ended up happening with General Electric? I would say I think they were perceived as harmless. I don't think they had deeper consequences, but I think they were symptoms of the attitudes that we're talking about. This idea that GE is so big that our little, you know, we lose a billion dollars here or there, it doesn't matter, right? The idea that like, well, I can, you know, some of these things, and to be clear, I think we point out in the book, like he didn't have, there was no one coming ahead of Jeff and saying, we need hard candies on every shelf. We need sodas all around him. It was like these things sort of organically happened out of this desire to please Jeff. And he had been running the place for 16 years and sort of this developed around him. There were certainly decisions that he made that were about him. And I think he justified them as his job is important. So it makes his job easier. And that's what matters, right? That's sort of the justification for the plane or the, the car trip or the, the room temperature or whatever. He needs that to work. But I think it does sort of show this culture of like, it's okay. We're big enough. We can do it. It doesn't matter. Like the job is important enough. Like it doesn't. That's my take. Ted, what do you think? I agree with that. I think it is, it's absolutely true, as Tom said, that it's no one ever described to us a moment of Jeff Immelt throwing a fit because his favorite hard candies were not there. The issue is more that as these sort of treatments of the, the executives sort of accumulate and as it becomes second nature to sort of cater to every whim, 
and the whole culture gets sort of ossified in that way. The thing that Imelt to this day doesn't really buy, which is that it became harder to tell him hard things or to tell him no, that's how this happens. If you treat the CEO like a sultan, even if he didn't ask to be treated like a sultan, harder to tell him he can do what he wants to do in a meeting. So that's why it's a symptom of a cultural problem. To say nothing of being simply wasteful, there is just no defending flying an empty jet airliner around because the one you're on that is one of the best planes in the world that's flying on your great engines might have a problem somewhere. That's just ridiculous. And especially from a company that's lecturing other companies about the environment. So some of these are just ridiculously wasteful and, and are frankly scandalous for that reason. You know, hard candy is not scandalous. And even the boss setting the thermostat where he wants is not scandalous, but it starts to become culturally off. There's a moment in the book where another executive, after Welch has departed, is in the headquarters and is heading to the elevator and someone rushes over to press the button for him. And he sort of goes, what? That's just strange. Like, that's the behavior of, you know, a palace, not of an office. Well, he didn't tamp down on any of these things. So, and the way that I read them is sort of the progression, right? Candy, that's not of a big deal. Maybe bringing his own treadmill. It's a little arrogant, but it's not that big of a deal if he exercises all the time and just wants it regular. You know, I know there are plenty of people that like regularity. But then you start to think about why did he need to paint the jets over? Like, why was that? And then the ones that were clearly his choice, like the airplane, the car waiting for him. These sort of now breach into what you described, the arrogance and the hubris. So is it just his whole mix of, like, his whole personality was just bring it on, we can do anything because we're GE, or is it we can do anything because I'm Jeff Immelt? I think it's more the former, to be honest. There have been big, bad CEOs who were much more, at least in their description or in their trials, or more megalomaniacal. That's not what we're describing about Jeff. And very much it was this sort of, all things are possible at GE if you want it bad enough and if you work hard enough. And oh, by the way, if you can't do it, there's a guy behind you who will do it. So you better. And that's what we kind of identify as being a little bit of his, it's almost an athletic attitude toward how you manage and how you succeed. I think on these perks, I think the problem is that, as you say, he didn't tamp down on some of this stuff. And a lot of this is stuff that is being done by people who work for him who want him to be happy and want him to you know, think that they're doing a good job, but the culture sneaks up on you in an organization. And to think that you can have people who are this dedicated to making sure that you're happy in all ways all the time, but that you're also getting the absolute unvarnished hard truth all the time is a little naive. And I think that's one of the lessons here. Because there are things that in Imelt's telling and the telling of other top executives, not just Jeff, There are things that they say, you know, look, if anybody saw that this was going wrong, they ought to have told me. And the thing is, I think what we're saying by including some of these details is these big corporate cultures, even if the rule is that anyone with an objection ought to raise his hand, if, as Tom said, the place feels so big that it doesn't really matter if you're paying a billion dollars too much, And the culture is that if you're the one who tells the boss that he can't do the deal he wants to do, it's going to sort of stall your career out, then you're not going to get 
the really unpleasant long tail risk warning from the guy who's three levels below you, even though he's the one who sees, you know, buying Alstom is a bad idea, for instance. So that's the issue, is that this is tied up in a culture that I think even the participants in it thought was more transparent internally than it really was. I really appreciate the language you just used, Ted, because the lessons to be learned from this is what I'm hoping as we go on that you'll continue to punctuate that way so that our audience gets a, okay, this is what I'm supposed to learn from this. Because some of this is craziness. Some of this is not craziness. It's just, you know, personalities. But to the extent that there are takeaways and you also set up, you know, what you write about, which is that ML has this apparent lack of curiosity and rigor for creating an environment where people around him, like you were just describing, feared losing their jobs if they pushed back on his decisions or had bad news to share. And, you know, the whole time I was reading your book, I'm thinking, this is like a really well-educated guy. He went to the Harvard Business School. You would think that, I mean, obviously, an understanding of psychological and emotional safety is sort of emerging since these days. But you would think that with all that background in education, that he would have a greater sense of saying, tell me what you want to tell me with freedom, without repercussions. And yet he was just the opposite of that, which is a huge flaw for anyone in leadership, but especially as a CEO. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's a tough question to answer in the sense of, I think you have that Harvard Business School stamp. You know, obviously business school, you can have a lot of different views. A lot of different schools are different. You know, what you get out of it, it certainly doesn't teach you how to be, you know, president of the United States or head of a country, which is essentially what Jeff, I think, saw his job as. And he may not have been that wrong in the sense of the 24-7 complexity he was dealing with, but he was a smart guy. There's no question. I think we could talk a bit about the skills and the strengths and what was actually needed. And he was there for 16 years over this enormous amount of time. And I think you could argue it would be very hard for a leader over 16 years to have all the skills and lessons that are required. I think most leaders would probably concede that they don't and would surround themselves with the people that they need. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a certain compounding that's happening, I think, over these years and everything we just talked about as far as like the entitlement or the perceived importance of GE and his role sort of compounds on each other. And now... Are there lessons for people to take out of that? I think there are. I mean, I think there's no one else who's the CEO of GE for that long and is dealing with that problem. But I think there's something to be said about governance and checks and balances and self-awareness, right? That sort of lack of, as you said, a lack of curiosity. Well, it's worse than a lack of curiosity because he's resisting or rejecting people that have alternative views or want to challenge his thinking or want to tell them that, you know, there's something hidden around the corner. So was he trying to project just supreme optimism all the time, like invincibility? Like, we don't need to hear bad news because we're invincible at GE? Or was it a character flaw of his or both? So I think part of the complexity, though, is thinking about the digital operation again. Like, it's worse than a lack of curiosity. But also, here's a guy who talking to engineers and is like, wait a minute, we have all this data. Someone else is going to use this. Someone else is going to make money off of this. And that should be us because no one else, and this is how he described it. No one else knows these businesses and these machines like we do. Nobody else understands this data like we do. And we're the ones who should make something of it. I mean, that's brilliant, right? 
I mean, that comes out of nowhere. I mean, you think he had it, but then you get, it's like from there, where do you go? And I think once he, as Ted said, once he was sort of set on a goal, that was the goal. They're going to do it themselves. This is how they're going to do it. Awesome deal. They're going to do the deal, get on board. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Also, that hubris about no one else knows it as well as we do was not always true. We, the example on the digital side of getting all of this data from some of their healthcare machines and what you had was just way too much data and just an absolutely cumbersome software problem that was not an immediate success that was transforming medicine, despite the fact that they'd already been sending out the press releases saying this is all going to be great. So like their domain knowledge of their machines is excellent, obviously. It doesn't necessarily translate into them immediately knowing the best application. So there was there was that, which is a sort of overconfidence in what we know and what we can do with it. So yeah, I totally agree with what Tom said. I also just think that in terms of this question of rigor and wanting to sort of not hear no, it's two things. There is this conflation sometimes with him of the will to get something done and this feeling that if you simply are willing to work hard enough, it will work out. And that just runs into math sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And it's not that the person who's doing the presentation in front of you, who's offering you a number for sales growth next year that you don't think is high enough, isn't working hard enough or doesn't, isn't, you know, working his team hard enough. Sometimes it's just, that's, you're just not going to sell that many in the year to come. And that's the deal. So like that was part of the leadership style that I think, as we say in the book, oftentimes he drove people harder and they got things done. So like, I think that's the peril of, criticizing this too much is that ML style often worked. Like he didn't get to be the CEO of GE for no reason. He was quite successful in managing people. And, but there are pitfalls to that and there are limits to the approach. And then the other thing, just to reiterate the sort of transparency part, we had so many conversations and this is about ML, but it's also about the people directly around him. That's his decision who is right around him, who just felt like if no one raised this problem directly to me, then it couldn't have been a big deal. And that's why Alston was so telling, that you had people who were just directly involved in what they were going to pay for it, how much they were going to pay for it, who thought it was a bad idea. And when the CEO and CFO think, well, look, if some person down on the lower deck of the ship objected, well, he never raised it to me and he should have, that's sort of the attitude of the hindsight criticism of the deal. But the point is the ship hit the iceberg anyway. So it was actually your job to know what the guy down on the lower decks thought because you were the captain when you hit the iceberg. And that's the thing that is sort of, I think, frustrating for the email critics who we talk to. So I'm going to ask you both the same question. What's the leadership takeaway from Jeff Immelt? In some respects, the way you're describing him is, man, this guy can hit a fastball. Throw a fastball at him. He's got homer after homer. But Give him a curveball and not so good. But man, can he hit a fastball. But in the game of baseball, for this just popped into my head as a metaphor for what we're talking about, is you need to be able to do both at that level. So was he flawed in the ability to, to really execute the role as a CEO? Was he the victim of you know bad timing? I mean, we're still talking about an organization that's completely changed and nowhere near the company that it was when he took it over. So what's your assessment? What do we want our leadership audience to take away from his example? I'll try to take a stab at that. The leadership takeaway. 
Jeff was a great the knock and compliment on him is, is he was a great salesman. I think when you compare him to Welch, which is a natural thing to do, and I think also maybe comparing him to any leader of a complex company, you're more of a multi-tool player than simply hitting home runs. And you are going to have, probably have a deeper understanding of operations and finance. And as Ted said, that, you know, what the person down on the lower decks is thinking. And I think Jeff wandered from that. I think everything was about the story and the marketing and fitting it into the sort of GE mythology. If you thumb through some of their old annual reports, you can see that. So I think if anything, he didn't surround himself with the right people. If Jeff could go and be a CEO of another company, I can't answer that. I don't know whether he really had the sort of whatever special sauce makes a CEO if there is such a thing. I agree with all that. The lesson I would add to that one is that in an organization of anywhere near this size and scale, I think more humility is required about the culture you inherit. And especially one that is a, it's a proud culture. These GE people, yes, you know, are very proud of GE still to this day. Even those who were pissed off at what happened, they're very proud to be career GE employees. They tell you that within the first minute you meet them. And but proud cultures and especially a culture like GE that had developed all of these processes that were supposed to guard against anything and prevent any bad surprises, the humility and the work to interrogate them and to figure out what was really working and what was just kind of being glossed over is really essential. And you see that from the second MLP is gone. The very first thing John Flannery did was to walk around and start telling people no success theater. You know, let's turn over all the rocks. And then they turned over some rocks and there was stuff that was even worse than what had gone before ML left. Or, I mean, it had been going on, but hadn't been disclosed. So I think that's painful and it's hard I'm sure to be a leader who is trying to keep morale up in a big company where that's a big part of your job. But you also have to be really investigating the things that are going wrong in addition to the things that are going right. And I don't mean just punishing the guy who misses his numbers, but figuring out if, you know, all of these processes on which you rely to come up with the numbers in the first place, for instance, are as good as you think they are. If you really know the things you think you know. And I think certainly that's what in the Flannery era, as brief as it was, that's one of the things that GE was doing as a correction from EML and really as a correction from Welch too. And I think that's probably an important lesson to do that work, even though it is very unpleasant and it might make even the stock market a little mad at you. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it because the kind of discipline, I mean, you pointed out in the book that like one of the board of directors said, our job is to applaud. That's when Jack Welch was there. Instead of to do the rigorous, you know, disciplined oriented, you know, look under the hood and see whether or not what they're saying is true. Like just keep us informed, give us the data that you're using, help us understand what you're trying to do as opposed to, man, you guys just keep doing great. So we're just going to stay out of your business. Was that one of the flaws here too? And by the way, it struck me that the people that were on General Electric's board were CEOs themselves and business school deans. I mean, really impressive people. How could they have allowed that to go on for so many years without any rigor? First of all, you're right. It's a the failure of the board here, just unquestionably. The board didn't, I don't want to say they didn't do their job because they, they showed up and they performed functions that were being asked of them, but clearly a board exists to not allow some of these things to occur. So they didn't get it done. 
I also think that this is a perfect example where the company, to the extent we can know, I think they truly believed that they had a good process and board members would go visit business lines and they would get to go talk to people in factories and they would always say they got to do that out of earshot of the business CEO or out of Immelt's earshot. And they viewed that as the board members themselves getting an independent look into how the operations really worked and that it was growing all of this knowledge on the board of all of these diverse business lines. And and I'm sure that it's true that some of those directors did acquire knowledge about what it was really like to manufacture power turbines in South Carolina, but it didn't help in the most important functions of all, these big strategic decisions, it didn't seem true in the end that the board could ever really yank the reins when ML wanted something. And clearly that had not been the case under Welch either. And that's just a failure. I mean, the purpose of having a board of directors is that you've got a CEO who by definition is a man or a woman who is ambitious and wants to do big things and is going to more likely to swing at the pitch than not, right? I mean, that's the personality type that companies put in this job. The board exists to tell them not to swing sometimes. And, and mm-hmm. I just feel these people, as you say, are universally very smart and very accomplished for whatever reason that that group just didn't really get the job done. I was going to say, I think that it is GE's board of directors. I think under Welch and ML, it was to some degree, it was Jack's board of directors and it was Jeff's board of directors not necessarily, you know, thinking about the mission is to GE. And to me, a great sign of the problem is what we have in the book of basically Jeff pushing Sandy Warner, the former CEO of JP Morgan, off the board, which is something that she's pretty open about. And I think if you're, when you get to a point where you are the chairman and you are the CEO, which we've talked about why that could be an issue, but, and you are pushing people off the board, that seems completely broken. You know, that is a group of people that's supposed to be overseeing management Mm -hmm. and management should not have control over that group. Tom and Ted, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition that we call the heartbeat round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your respective lives. I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. So, Ted, you're going to get to play first. Tom, you'll go next. And what I'd like for you to do is to answer each of these in a heartbeat. You ready to play? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Here we go, Ted. One thing about Tom as a journalist that you most admire. Um, His work ethic. He writes constantly. Your favorite section in any day's edition of the Wall Street Journal? The late lamented Greater New York section. One book that profoundly shaped who you'd go on to become? Uh, Buzz Bissinger's A Prayer for the City. The quality you'd most admire in other people? Courage. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? Um, Fear of failing at something is worse than failing at something. The biggest challenge CEOs face today? Climate change. One major workplace change you're certain is going to happen globally post-COVID? The end of the candy bowl in the office. <laughs> <laughs> Cultural value every organization should have? Candor. Hmm. Your synonym for the word heart? Empathy. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? If it's physically possible to jump off something tall into water. And what's the future of work for most people? Work from home, work in the office, or hybrid? This is totally self-interest. I'm hoping it's hybrid because I got a puppy. 
<laughs> okay, great. Thank you very much. Tom, you ready to go? Sure. What's one thing about Ted as a journalist you most admire? Other than his patience with me, I would say Ted is one of the most well-read people I've ever met. His vocabulary is second to none. He's the only person that regularly has me reaching for a dictionary. Wow, that's high status there. Your favorite section in any day's edition of the Wall Street Journal? Uh, Ted stole my answer. Our New York section was brilliant. Unfortunately, they've ended it. So I'm going to have to go with sports because people don't know our sports coverage is actually excellent. You have one of the greatest writers in any genre as a sports writer. Jason Gay. Yeah. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah, in every sense. I think that's true. One book that profoundly shaped who you'd go on to become? I would say Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Quality admire most in other people? Compassion. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? Uh, how to be an owner of an old house. <laughs> the biggest challenge CEOs face today? Um, that was the obvious one, COVID. One major workplace change you're certain is going to happen globally post-COVID, if that ever happens? Um, I, I think just flexibility. And it's really the only thing you can be certain about, that there'd be more flexibility. Cultural value every organization should have? Open-mindedness. Your synonym for the word heart? Passion. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? Travel to another country. And what's the future of work for most people? Work from home, work in the office, or hybrid? I think it's work from the office. Very good. Thank you, gents. Your answers were really great and both provocative, too. So uh, thank you for going through this with me. Sure thing. Thank you. Um, before we go, guys, I'd like to ask each of you to consider one leadership lesson that you learned from General Electric's experience over the past three, four decades and it could include just, you know, a reiteration of something you've said before that you think is most important or something that we haven't had a chance to discuss. And Tom, why don't we start with you? I think I would say well, almost a continuation of what I was just saying, checks and balances. You know, having a CEO for too long who doesn't have someone overseeing him, you know, he was CEO for as long as he was, largely because that was his decision. And I would also say, I think the chairman of the board should be someone different than who is the top executive of the company. I think that's a problem. You can debate that in corporate circles. But I do think that is, to me, was a big sort of lesson. To me, I think you could read our book and hopefully get a sense of that. I agree with that one. I think that one of the things we've touched on a little bit here is there was a degree of marketing of the company, of telling the world that the company could be anything you wanted to be, but also just telling the world that it was whatever you needed it to be for sort of PR reasons. I understand why it was so attractive to just be so aggressive in thinking about narrative and story and talking about eco-imagination while also buying a company that's going to burn coal for decades. You know, things that are actually internally inconsistent. I do think it matters that some of this public messaging, it doesn't have to be untrue, but if you're being somewhat misleading about that, or if you're just sort of gilding the lily all the time, I do think that just culturally isn't really good. I don't know that you could ever tie it to a price decline in a share of stock, but you ought to be able to, to just tell the honest truth about what you make, what it does, why people should buy it, what are the bad things that come out of the tailpipe or the smokestack and what you're going to try to do to make fewer of those in the future. And the answer to that is not having TV commercials with CGI dancing baby elephants. The answer to that is telling the truth about what you do. 
And I think that culturally is important for every business, not just GE. They're by no means a sole offender here. I'm not trying to pick on them individually, but it's the sort of thing that comes up over and over and over again if you cover a company like this over time, where there's just an incredible volume of stuff being churned out, basically just to give people a good feeling about the brand. When I think you'd be better served in the long run to just say, this is what we do. We employ this number of thousands of engineers and tradesmen and and machinists, and we make these giant things and we're trying to make them better. And you don't have to hype it or oversell it. I think just being a little bit more candid about what you can do now, what you hope to be able to do in the future, I think that's what every company should be striving for. Awesome. Tom Greta, Ted Mann, thank you very, very much for joining me. This was really, really great conversation, very revealing, insightful, and I'm very, very grateful to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Before we say goodbye, I would just like to say thank you for listening and for being patient with our return. I spent the summer writing a second edition of my book, Leaf from the Heart, and I was surprised when I was finished. In so many ways, what I produced was an entirely new book. And my publisher has confirmed that the new edition won't be published until next August, which is nearly a year from now. So I hope you'll read the original and share it with others until the new one comes out. It's very much evergreen and outlines the kind of leadership that's really become essential in the COVID and post-COVID era workplace. I want to thank my team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Gary Finnessy, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.